Welcome to Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. A special Monday edition of the Jonah Carey Podcast, and uh, it's warranted. It's with Jeff Boris. Jeff, one of the legendary agents uh, in baseball history. He has represented Ricky Henderson and Mike Piazza and Barry Bonds and a whole bunch of great players. He's now the general counsel for the Ballingy Group based out of Dallas. Shout out to Scott Lonergan and Paul Quo and all the great people who work over there. And uh, Jeff was extremely candid about what's going on in today's baseball world. Let me cut right to the chase. He charges collusion. He believes that the owners and teams are colluding against players as we speak. And uh, something's going on. You know, either everybody has decided to be extremely efficient at the exact same time in lockstep, not one team being inefficient. Or tanking is causing teams to stop paying for players because the competition goes way down or the luxury tax is causing all this stuff or all the above. But something's happening because Harper and Machado are still out there. You have guys signing for way below what you would expect. You have players waiting way longer than before. More and more free agents are glutting the market. And uh, revenues are going more and more over to owners and teams as opposed to players. It's it's now approaching 60-40 on the owners to player side. Uh, with no end in sight. In fact, last year record revenues of the sport of over more than $10 billion and the average salary actually went down. Salaries down a little bit while uh, revenue is exploding. And this is insane. And so Jeff and I get into it. We talk about why and how this happened. And he was there for collusion in the eighties when some great players were colluded against. Moreover, he represented Barry Bonds after Bonds put up a 480 uh, on base percentage, OPS over a thousand. Led the majors in home runs per at bats and, uh, couldn't get an offer, couldn't get anything, not a DH offer, not a pinch hitting offer, nothing. And he charged collusion then too. He actually tried to argue the case, but didn't have a smoking gun, so to speak. And that's sort of it. You know, it's, you could argue on the other side, well, we're just being efficient and we don't want to sign guys who are 31 and maybe we'll wait on Harper and whatever it is. But you know, when teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees are like, well, luxury tax, maybe we'll just pass. It's an insult, man. It's an insult on that front when the teams that's the high end of the totem pole are doing that. And when you've got 10 or 12 teams tanking at the same time, guess what? You're not all going to win the World Series. And not trying for talent is a cop-out. And frankly, fans should be voting, you know, with their feet, with their dollars. They should be thinking about, do I want to support this team that's not trying at all? I get that the Cubs and the Astros won the World Series after completely stripping it to the ground and leaving everything, just getting rid of everything. But make an effort. And and uh, so – this podcast goes up today. I've got a piece coming out this week also at CBS Sports where I give a little praise to the teams that aren't tanking, like Cincinnati. You know, they were really bad last year. They lost 90-odd games. And they said, you know what? We're going to go for it. We're At least a little bit, we're going to do something. And I myself was guilty of this. When the Dodgers made that trade with the Reds recently, Yasiel Puig and Alex Wood and Matt Kemp going over to Cincinnati, I said, oh, wow, the Dodgers dumped all this salary, and that's great. Maybe they'll go out and do something with that money and sign Harper Machado. I mean, maybe they'll sign Harper Machado, but I'm not seeing it right now. As of right this moment, it kind of looks like a salary dump, and you're the Dodgers. You have more money than God. It's ridiculous that Cincinnati is buying your players, uh, but that's where we're at. So kudos to Cincinnati, man, and, and the White Sox and the Padres and teams that – we're bad last year, but they say, you know what? Our fans deserve better than just total garbage and intentional losing for the sake of what? Maybe getting a number eight or number nine draft pick, but really the bottom line with tanking, rebuilding, whatever you want to call it, is it's a cover. It's an excuse to just put money in your pocket. And now 
supposedly smarter fans weaned in the Moneyball era, raised in the Moneyball era, like, ah, oh, there's no point in winning 78 games. Might as well bottom out. And I myself have been guilty of this and, and no more. It's ridiculous. We cannot be thinking this way. Baseball is a competitive product. You can't just mail it in. You know, you should try. Even if you might not win the World Series, you should try. Your fans should have reason to be interested in the games. And we could take this to minor league players too. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. should not have been in the minors all of last season. And I suspect at the beginning of this season, Chris Bryant should not have been in the minors at the beginning of that year in which he ultimately went bonkers and, you know, later became a, a really huge guy for the Cubs. This is just not reasonable. I get that teams are trying to, you know, go by the rules and figure out the best way to make the most money that they can and win games. I get all that, but this isn't a widget factory. And baseball has an antitrust exemption, moreover, which also Jeff Boris and I talked about. And you know what? If you're going to use your antitrust exemption, then maybe don't operate like a widget factory. Maybe operate like a public trust. Maybe make an effort. The profits will still be there. If you make $70 million in, in operating income in a year instead of 120 or 90 or whatever, you're still doing fine. Your investment is still paying off. But if you consider it a public trust and you're asking for public dollars for stadiums and an antitrust exemption, all these things, you owe it to the fans to put a better product on the field. That goes if you are a top-of-the-market team like the Dodgers or the Yankees, and it goes if you are a team that is tanking. It, it just it, – it has to change. This is not acceptable. Uh, players should be making a bigger share of the pie, and fans should be experiencing the best that their team should have to offer. And it's, it's not acceptable right now. So this podcast with Jeff Boris uh, reflects all that. We talk about the bonds thing. He alleges collusion and, uh, and we go deep. And a lot of my content recently has been about that. And a lot of my content going forward will be as well. And we'll see what happens with Harper and Machado and AJ Pollock and Dallas Keiko and all this. But, uh, I'm not going to sit idly by. Baseball is a great game and, uh, we deserve to see the best players being compensated accordingly and teams making a real and concerted effort to actually try to win rather than sort of try to win, but also make as much money as possible. End of rant podcast. Jeff Boris, go listen. Jeff Boris, General Counsel for the Ballinger Group. We have lots to talk about. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jonah. All right. So <laughs> there's so many places that we can go. First of all, I'm going to start by saying uh, congratulations on settling uh, the arbitration cases for Ballinger. You and the hardworking group of folks over there uh, had a bunch to get through. And this has been a tough season for arbitration. You know, the rumors were that teams did not want to settle, that if things couldn't be agreed to, moreover, by the deadline date, and that was going to be it. There was going to be no looking back. Teams were drawing a hard line. What was your perception uh, of this arbitration season compared to some of the many that you've had to experience in the past? Well, most cases usually get done at the deadline. However, this year I thought it was an inordinately high amount of cases that settled at the deadline or actually uh, within, let's say, an hour after the deadline, what we call the quiet period. Yep. When Teams have submitted numbers 
to the commissioner's office. Players have submitted numbers to the players' union, and that's what's called the, the quiet period, and cases continue to be negotiated during that time, more, more so than previous years. Why do you think that is? Why why do you think teams waited so long? I, I imagine it wasn't any intransigence on your part. I'm sure if you had your druthers, you could get your client settled before this. So if it's the other side, what do you think might have been going on on the other side? I knew the right numbers for my players at the winter meetings. I go sure. there every year, and this is the first week in December. And when I'm meeting with every single club, I always say to them, are you prepared to discuss the arbitration cases that I, I happen to have with you? Because I'm prepared. I I know what the right number is in first week of December. Uh, sometimes clubs say yes, sometimes they say no, but I always know what the right number is. And I think the clubs feel that they get their best deal right at the, you know, the stroke of midnight, right at the final hour. So that's probably why deals uh, got done yesterday at the deadline. Fair enough. All right. So I want to talk to you about the broader free agent market and, and, uh, there are all kinds of clients out there. The two that I'm going to mention right now are not Ballinger clients, but of course, your perspective uh, looms large just from having represented so many players and more than a billion dollars in contracts negotiated over the years. And that's what's happening with Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. Now, uh, these are terrific players. They're in their mid-20s, so they should be right in their prime. You know, Alex Rodriguez got a big payday at that age. So the few other players who've come out of that age who've been elite have been able to do that. And we don't know what's going to happen to these two guys. You know, a couple of years ago, I think we all would have said, oh, yeah, it's going to be $400 million. No problem. That's the way salaries are are trending. And you could already look ahead and see how young and good these guys are. And that's that. And now, behind the scenes, you hear rumors about teams floating high AAV offers if they can get four years in an opt-out. And maybe we'll do this number. And maybe we'll do that number. And the enthusiasm seems to have been tamped down a little bit. Uh, first of all, are you finding the same? And, and if so, what might be behind that? Because these guys should absolutely get paid based on their skills and their age. I think uh, when you look at the revenues coming into the game, which I just saw a report indicating that it, it broke an all-time record. It was over $10 billion. Yep. Uh, the cost of labor should hand-in-hand hand go up as well. And when that doesn't happen, I think that that is an indication of a tremendous collusive effort on behalf of the owners to suppress salaries uh, for the players. And I think that the owners over the years have gotten more sophisticated in the methodology and how they go about doing that. And I think that's what you're seeing right now. All right. Well, this is what now we can dig in because this is the question I was going to ask. I was going to cite the C word. We've gotten there in question number two. So let's go. So you've been through the periods where collusion was actually found in Major League Baseball, starting with 85 to 89, which was Galling. I, I, just for some very quick background, I'm a Montreal Expos fan growing up. Tim Raines and Andre Dawson couldn't get paid. Andre Dawson had to go to the Cubs in spring training with his agent and say, here's a contract. Put whatever number you want on it, and I will play for that number. They did. He made $500,000 and won the MVP that season. Tim Raines, who might have even been a slightly better player than Dawson at that point, only was able to play on May 2nd of that year because his team had shut him out for so long he got no offers. He came back in his first game back, hit a basically a game-winning grand slam, went four for five. He hit something like 330 that year and went bonkers. Jack Morris was colluded against. You had some high-profile clients who were colluded against. What did it look like in the 80s? You said the teams are more sophisticated now. What did the less sophisticated mechanisms look like? Well, I think if you were talking to an owner right now, he would tell you that he would refer to that time period as being the good old days. Uh-huh. <laughs> because at that time period, the owners were very brash about it. Uh, you know, they they would go and they would say, 
you know, I know how much you've been offered. I'm not going to go a penny over that. Uh, there was a, it was a tremendous coordinated effort uh, on their part at the time, but it was out in the open. They, they, they weren't trying to hide the ball on anything. They, they knew where you'd been. They knew who you talked to. They knew how much you had been offered. And they simply would say, hey, I'm, I'm not going over that. And that wasn't a truly free and competitive market as we know it should be. Uh, eventually, Tom Roberts was the arbitrator that ruled against them, and they had to pay a $280 million fine into a settlement fund that was carved up. So guys like Andre Dawson, who I know, put a blank contract in front of the Cubs Crazy. and told them to fill it in, and they, they filled it out for 500000 He eventually got that adjusted to $2 million. Uh, out of that $280 million fund, he, he got some money. Yeah. So so what what happened during that time? Now, there was also something called an information bank that was established by a man named Barry Rona where teams would call into a central location and they would give information as to who they were talking to, oh my what was God. Going, what offers went back and forth. And it, it was just a very, very dark time in baseball. And so what had happened was you would think that the owners would have abandoned their, uh, in, in the future, their, their practices because, you know, in essence, they got nailed for doing what they were doing, mm-hmm. but they didn't, they didn't abandon it. What they did was they became more sophisticated about it. And it's continued on throughout the years and it exists up until this very day, except it's harder to, you know, point a finger at them and say, you did this and you did that. I mean, I always point back to the, the Barry Bond situation after the oh, 2007 yeah. season when he broke Hank Aaron's record. You know, was a major league all-star, home run to a bat ratio, led the major leagues, his on-base percentage, his OPS led the major league. Yep. I mean, he was still competing at a very, very high level, and I couldn't even get him a job for the minimum salary, which is just utterly preposterous, right there on its face. You cannot take a player who has statistical performance like that, and it's unfathomable that he can't even get a job at any number, let alone the minimum salary. Right. Okay, but for and being blacklisted from the game. Well, the problem there is I, I never had any hard evidence, okay? It's, it's all based on this circumstantial evidence, speculation, and naturally we filed a collusion claim and lost. And the arbitrator had written that, uh, you know, I had no smoking gun, which, which I knew going in, but, right. I mean, come on, it doesn't, it doesn't pass the smell test. I mean, there's no way a player of that caliber can't get a job. So the owners, they... they still feel that they own the game, they are the game, and they're going to say who can play and when they can play and how much they play for, and it, it's really not a true, free, open, competitive market like it would be in any other industry, profession that exists in, in the United States. Uh, we're going to get to Bonds in a minute because other than former Expos, Barry Bonds is by far my favorite player of all time. I have a Barry Bonds bat. The 2007 thing drove me absolutely crazy. And I, still to this day, I'm bitter about it. I was not Bonds' agent, nor was I Bonds. So I can only imagine on your end. But I want to ask you about, uh, you know, collusion in 2002, 2003, and then today. And I, I'm, I'm, I want to be careful here because we do not want to speculate. You know, we could just, well, that's not true. We can certainly speculate on things that have strong circumstantial evidence. But what I want to try to do is play a little exercise with you, which is to say, okay, there was a central bank back then you could call in. It was very brazen. Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf and his pals were doing whatever they needed to do. Now, if a team wanted to be collusive, if a team wanted to figure out what do I need to pay to get Manny Machado, as a for instance, what could a team do in that circumstance to try to figure out a way to spend less money on labor? 
when you say figure out, what do you what do you mean? Well, I mean, like to not overbid, you know, because it's obviously a sealed process, right? So, I mean, it's you know, if you if you think that you you still want Manny Machado, but you think you can get him for one hundred and eighty million dollars, which might be half of what he's worth. How in the past you would just call the central bank and oh Tim Raines is being offered one million dollars okay I'll offer a million and one and that's it you better take it or leave it now if we're in an industry where teams are potentially being collusive what might they be doing what what could be going on at the moment well what you would do is you would look at what the biggest contract out there is right now yeah and the biggest contract out there right now is stems yep okay. Um, Stan's contracts, $320 million, let's just say, uh, for argument's sake. So, you know, if you were Harper or Machado, you would say, okay, I'm trying to eclipse that amount. I mean, you mentioned $400 million earlier. Yeah. That would be, let's say, the next next logical stepping mm-hmm. stone for, for those players, right? So now you take Team X, and Team X says, okay, we're going to offer $180 million for Machado or $180 million for Harper. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that seems far low than, than the bar that's already been set, right? Right. But, you know, you throw a number out there like that, and if it's a destination that the player wants to play at, you make a counter offer as the agent, and you see, you work till there's a meeting of the mind. But it would seem that that number is so so inordinately low that a counter would hard, be hard to make because they would be so far apart from what the fair market value of the player would be in an arm's length transaction. Sure, but I think the thing that gets me is that suddenly we start going away from total value when we start talking about AAVs. And we're seeing this in the media too. You know, it's the media will report whatever's out there. And so if a general manager whispers in their ear and says, yeah, you know what, between you and me, I don't think Harper's getting $321 million or $400 million, but I think he can eclipse the average, the largest average salary, which I believe is Granky at like 35. Maybe Harper even wants to eclipse Russell Westbrook, who's the, of the big four North American sports. He's the one with the highest AAV. I believe he's making 41. So I'm making it up. The Dodgers, you can name your team. It doesn't matter. I'm not trying to cast aspersions on any one team. Says, okay, Bryce Harper, I'll give you a four year deal for 45 per and we'll just call it that and you can go back out on the market at 30. How does this suddenly become a viable alternative? How does this suddenly become, oh, yeah, you know, I'll think about this. How do people in the media credulously report this and say there isn't something fishy going on, if indeed that kind of thing were happening? Well, first of all, one thing the teams do that they're not supposed to do is they're not supposed to communicate through the media. Yes. So, for instance, (laughs) if you were to take a team like the Yankees and the Yankees say, uh, we're no longer in uh, the Manny Machado sweepstakes anymore, they're not supposed to do that because then that takes a potential suitor out of the hunt. Mm-hmm. You follow? You follow me? Yes. Uh, that that should that should not occur. That that's really not fair. But that still occurs to this day. Stuff like that does happen. Now, as far as the AAV being high, so let's just say uh, Stanton's AAV right now, let's say it's thirty-five million. Let's say he's the highest AAV contract out there in Major League Baseball, and he just said that they're going to offer you know Harper a four-year deal at. 40, whatever, $2 million a year. Mm-hmm. So now he has the highest AAV, but for a shorter period of time. Well, when you look at his age, Harper's age, he's coming into the prime of his career. You look at his health history, and you think to yourself, first off, is a four-year deal warranted for somebody like that? Mm. Or, or or would a, a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year deal be more warranted? Isn't this a guy that you want to make the cornerstone of your franchise, the, the face of your franchise, and have him there as a mainstay? 
for a long period of time. So I think that it, that goes hand in hand. I think not only does the AAV have to eclipse the highest AAV that's out there, but it's got to be a deal in years that that's appropriate for the player's age and health history. I mean, when I have players who are older, you know, when I'll say older, I'll say 34, 35, sure. 36, but they're still playing at, at a very high level. You know, I'm not going to go out and ask for a 10-year deal on a 35-year-old. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't make sense. You know, but he might play 10 more years if he plays on a series of one or two-year deals, yep. which would be appropriate and fair. Uh, so the bottom line is I think they, they both have to go hand-in-hand. Hand. You have to look at the average annual value of what a player is seeking and determine if that's reasonable. And I think that it would be reasonable to make either Machado or Harper the high, highest AAV currently. And then for a period of years, I think that a four-year deal wouldn't be appropriate for either guy. Now, if you give a guy like that a 10-year deal with a, an ability to opt out after four years, yeah. that's a different story. Sure. That's a different story. But, but a four-year deal isn't appropriate for a 27-year-old who has you know, a health history that would indicate he should be able to play for another 10 years without any problems. The other mechanism, or one of the other mechanisms being used by teams to try to argue, to cry poor, basically, is the luxury tax, which, uh, what are we doing? The luxury tax is one of the least punitive, we'll call it a labor tax, a labor cap, in any of the sports. In other words, it's been put in there, but it should not really affect teams' decision-making, particularly if you're the Yankees or the Dodgers. I have long said, not that I'm alone, but if you're a team like the Yankees, the Yankees could roll out a $400 million payroll and turn a profit, and you can't tell me otherwise. The Yes Network is a gigantor, huge, huge mechanism. The Dodgers are a huge, huge revenue club. They could go well beyond the luxury tax, which is 196 198 200 This is nothing, and yet it's been put in there, and suddenly... Again, the media, I have to say, parrots this and says, well, you know what? Team X wanted to get under the luxury tax, so it looks like they're out of the bidding for Machado or Harper. How could the Yankees be out of the bidding for Machado or Harper? How could the Dodgers try to be holding the line on fiscal responsibility? Wouldn't you think that those teams would owe it to their fans, having spent, you know, in the Dodgers' case, $2 billion in acquisition fees, and then being in this gigantic market where you get all the benefits, you have an $8 billion TV contract, but no, 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 you don't want to pay five, six, ten million dollars in penalties on the luxury tax. Doesn't this strike you as completely insane? Yeah, well, first of all, the luxury tax is, I mean, it's a disguise for a yes. salary cap. It's a disguise for the owners to not go over a threshold. It, 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 it's almost a, a, an, agree, an agreement, you know, a, a gentleman's agreement, like, hey, nobody go over this and, and we'll all be okay. We'll, we'll all be better off for that. But when you look at it, uh, you know, let's, let's just call the luxury tax. I mean, I know it's 197 million. Let's call it 200 million. Yeah. But you mean a team couldn't, couldn't get 19, $10 million guys. Okay. That's 190 million and then get another six guys who pay them the minimum salary and field the competitive team. Of sure. course they could, you know, but each team is going to make their own fiscal decision as to what their bottom line looks like, how much money they want to make. And, you know, is, is from, from a profit perspective, that, that, that's where, you know, people talk about tanking all the time. Well, let's say you look at yourself and you say, you know what? I don't have a chance to compete this year, uh, but I do have a chance to make some money. Yep. So it's okay for me to come in fourth place. I'm not going to add a piece here or add a piece there that I know I desperately need. Spend an extra $2 million on that player, an extra $7 million on that player, because I'm still going to come in third or fourth place. But instead of having a $150 million profit, if I were to add those pieces and have a better team, 
you know, my profit would now be 130 million because I'm going to spend an extra 20 million and put it on the field, right? So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm still going to end up in fourth place. I'm not going to make those those additions. I'm going to run a crappy team out there, and I'm going to make 150 million instead of 130 million. And that's what you see what's going on. What is the remedy then for tanking? Because it creates a tough situation. You've got, by my count, about a dozen teams pretty much tanking. You know, they call it rebuilding, whatever you want to say. Guess what, Jeff? They're not all going to win the World Series. It doesn't, by definition, it can't work that way if everybody does it. So if this is happening and, you know, we've convinced fans to some extent and the media and then the Moneyball generation that, oh, it's just smart business. Look at the Cubs and the Astros. They stripped it to the core. They spent no money. They had big profits because they were spending nothing. And then they won the World Series. So if this is seems to be a blueprint that could work on the field, and if owners are guaranteed to make big money when they spend nothing and just accept the fact that they're uncompetitive, where is the remedy there? Is it literally only fans stop showing up for ball games, otherwise they can keep going? Or can the Players Association do something about this? No, I think there's an easy remedy, and the remedy is the fans. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. If you have a team, if you're, you're a season ticket holder, and you see that your team is trying and they fail, I think you're still going to be loyal to that yeah. team again next year. All right, you're going to go buy your season tickets again. You're going to come to the ballpark. You're going to support your team as you should. But now, if you're a season ticket holder for another team, and you see that team is not trying, they're not putting money on the field into talent. Well, I think that you get repulsed by that, and you say to yourself, "Okay, maybe I'll give them one more year or so to see if they turn things around." But now they do it again. I wouldn't renew my season tickets. I I, I just wouldn't do it. I'd be very upset because. If baseball's in your blood, you love the game, you yep. love the game. That's the bottom line. And, you know, maybe would I be disappointed if, my, say, my hometown team is the team I support and, and they're tanking? Yeah, I don't buy tickets and I'd look somewhere else to, to devote my baseball love and attention to. I'd, I'd find another team. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't like doing that. But I would end up doing that because I would feel that the club was being disloyal by not putting a competitive product out there on the field. So go back to a restaurant yeah. that serves me lousy food, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, same, same thing. So I think the fans is where the buck stops. I think the fans probably will have more of an impact than the players union could have in that regard because they're the customers of, of the owners. And that's how they answer them, by rebelling, by not buying tickets. So you and I are obviously the same mindset in many of these issues. I have the dog-eared copy of Lords of the Realm on my shelf and have read it 7,000 times and John Hellyar is my spirit animal. Uh, but I think that there is a perception among fans, because fans can look at things differently, that the salary cap does some good. That if you are Tampa Bay or Milwaukee, tamping down the spending of the Yankees or the Dodgers is a good thing because it means, okay, maybe the gap isn't as big and we have a chance too. So what would you say to fans who believe that the salary cap encourages a more competitive game among large markets and smaller markets? Well, when you talk about the salary cap, when I used to teach law school, I I taught sports law, and when the draft would come up, I would say to all these law students, I'd say to them, imagine that when you're graduating from law school, all the law firms in the country got together and they had a draft. Mm -hmm. And so let's say you went to law school in California, and you were born in California, raised in California, you want to stay there, you want to work for a law firm in California, maybe you want to go into, say, real estate, right? But you get drafted by a New York law firm. And that law firm uh, wants you to work in uh, family law. But you don't want to work in family law, and you don't want to move to New York, okay? And not only that, when you go there for your first 
six years as a lawyer, they're gonna, there's a cap as to what you make. So even if you do go to New York and even if you do practice family law and you're, let's say, a dynamite lawyer and you get unbelievable results, they're going to cap your wages. Uh, all the law students, as you could imagine, were always offended by that. I said, well, that's basically what goes on in professional sports. You have a baseball player. He grows up in California, goes to high school in California. You know, let's say he goes the college route and he gets drafted. He goes and he, now he gets drafted by a team in, in Florida, but he doesn't want to go to Florida, but that's where he goes. He has no freedom to go any other place. His wages are capped for a period of years. It's not fair. There's no other industry in the United States that operates like that. People don't think that way. What the average fan thinks is they look at, at a player and they say, oh, this guy's making $20 million a year yes. for playing a game. How lucky, how fortunate. Well, yes, that's true. That player is lucky and that player is fortunate. I mean, he has a set of skills that are so rare, all right, that he's able to get paid that high dollar amount for somebody, you know, who has that type of skill. Mm -hmm. No different that, than a singer or an actor or, or anybody else who can command a high amount of money because their skill set's so rare, then that's what society values and that's what they pay for. But it's really not fair. So the salary cap, I mean, the word just, just makes me cringe because yes. it's just not fair. It should be, okay, in the industry of baseball, I mean, everybody should be a free agent from day one in a perfect world. And players are going to get, you know, if you have superior skills, you don't have to wait a period of six years before you, you make money or you become arbitration eligible before you make money. You can make money on day one if your talent and if your skill level warranted, okay? But the way the system is set up and the way it's structured, that cannot happen. No doubt about it. By the way, I'm with you on abolishing the draft. I think that it's, it's uh, not accomplishing anything. I actually think the international market is even worse. Where you're 16, you might be, your family might be riven with poverty. You're in a place where you, this is literally your only way out. And now you're the property of a team maybe five years before the hotshot junior from UCLA comes out. So there, there's all kinds of issues that I, that we could get into if we had all day. Uh, what I want to ask you is this then, uh, you know, th these are definitely compared to status quo, Radical approaches, abolish the draft, make everybody a free agent from day one, by the way, all of which I agree with, since we're probably not going to get there in the next CBA. Three years from now, I don't know that Tony Clark or whoever's running the union is going to steamroll Major League Baseball and completely upend the entire system. In fact, I know that's not going to happen. So if you're trying to make incremental gains, let's say you're the head of the union, Jeff Boris. What are you fighting for in 2021? How are you trying to change the current system to make it more favorable for your members? Well, the, the things that I would want to do probably would not be accomplished, which is obviously I would abolish the tax and the revenue sharing completely. Yep. <laughs> I, would, I would make the draft a worldwide draft. Those would be the two primary things mm -hmm. on my focus and probably reduce arbitration eligibility. But what I just asked were those three things right there. That that's in fantasy land. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't think that anything would even come close to approaching. Now there might be some concessions that could be made, uh, and that would be okay, and that would be headed in the right direction. But uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, we got three years before that happens, and I'm optimistic that there'll be labor peace because. I remember the worst one of them all was the 94, 95 yes. strike when the industry was shut down for nine months. And, you know, I spent nine months twiddling my, my thumbs and commiserating with other players about when is this thing ever going to end? And I never thought that the World Series would have been canceled and the very dark day and a blemish on baseball. And even though it happened, I mean, we're looking at what? So over 25 years ago, uh, to me, it's still fresh in my memory. And I hope I never have to live through something like that again. Well, it is fresh in your memory, but it's not fresh in the player's memory. And I'm, I don't mean to be an agitator here, but 
you know, we're in a situation where the revenue split is roughly 60-40 in favor of the owners, where we've, we're achieving record revenues, but this is true. The average salary in Major League Baseball actually went down uh, in the most recent season. So obviously things are tilting more and more in that direction. Whether it's direct collusion or just, oh, I'm really smart, I went to Yale, and I know that the uh, actuarial table tells me not to spend big bucks for a 32-year-old, so I'm going to wait. Whatever you want to call it, tanking, you can make up excuses, what have you. The bottom line is, you know, it feels like something might need to be done. And and I want to, you know, maybe you could outline what the conditions would need to be for players to strike. Because in 94, the reason that the players struck is not because they're a bunch of greedy, terrible people. It's because the owners did not want to share revenue under any circumstances. And they said, okay, we're going to take it out of the players' pockets so that, let's call it the Montreal Expos, could get more money uh, rather than the New York Yankees giving it to them. Do you see this as, worth granted, we're three years away, but do you see these conditions as in any way comparable to 94-95 where the players might be forced to take action in the form of a labor stoppage if things don't change? Well, like I said, I, I, I'm a big proponent of labor peace, and I hope things yep. don't resort to or get to that level. I think that as a free market guy, I think that I'm against forcing the owners to spend money. Uh, I, I'm, I'm against no salary floor. Yeah, feelings, and I'm, I'm, I'm against floors as yep, well. Me too. I mean, you know, you want to talk about the players might say something like, uh, "Let's raise the minimum salary." As far as I'm concerned. Okay, there's minimum wage that's out there, right? Yeah. The federal minimum wage, that should be the floor. I mean, I know that sounds unrealistic, and uh, but the fact of the matter is I'm against floors, I'm against ceilings, mm. I'm against caps. I, I'm a free market guy. And I think that what has to happen when you said that, uh, you know, it might be fresh in my memory, but I think you were indicating that there's nobody who's playing Major League Baseball today that was around during the 94, yes. 95 strike. True. However, this is the single most important thing that the union needs to do, and I think they do a very good job of doing this, and that is they need to constantly be educating their membership, the players, Mm. because they need to have a duty of loyalty to the players who come before them and pave the way for the rights that they have today. And They also have an obligation to future players, players who are are not professionals right now, who are playing Little League baseball someplace, high school baseball someplace, for those players, when they eventually make it to the major leagues, that their rights are still in place. So it, it's a big burden on, on the players union to constantly educate the players on the history of the game as far as labor is concerned and make the players understand why they're in the position that they're in today and what occurred before them, the duty they have today and how, how to act, and the obligation they have to their, their future players who are on the horizon. Two more questions real fast. Um, I, you did represent Barry Bonds in 2007. I mentioned my affinity for Bonds. If you could share with us just a little bit of some of the reaction that you had when you tried to take your client out on the market after that really, really impressive 2007 season, even if one argued that Barry Bonds was not necessarily a gold glove outfielder at that point, how Barry Bonds could not have been the best designated hitter in the league by a mile at that point. What happened when you went out and said, okay, my client is a free agent, make an offer? You know, you know, I love the fact that you just brought up his defense right there because a lot of people have said that to me. They said, well, half the teams are gone, not potential to this one because he can't play the outfield anymore. Okay, the statistics don't indicate that. Hmm. He had, he was, he had, he committed four errors in the outfield in 135 games and his range factor and all the, all the metrics that, yep. that, that the analytical geeks use today. Measuring Barry, he was 
he was an average outfielder yeah. at that time. So we don't eliminate all those other teams. Okay. Okay. So every team was available to him, and it was just it, it was laughable. I mean, I got I'll, t- I'll tell you how it played out. Please. I had numerous general managers that wanted to sign Barry. I had spoken with several field managers who wanted Barry playing for them, obviously, because all they care about is winning and getting the best, you know, having the best players available to them to put in the lineup, right? Okay, so how come I couldn't get him a job? I couldn't get him a job because it was coming from higher up. Because no general manager is going to sign a player of Barry Bonds' caliber without talking to his owner first. Yes. Okay? You're not talking about a, a, a lefty specialist or a you know, backup catcher. You're talking about, I mean, arguably the best player that's ever put a uniform yes. on. Okay? Controversial, yes. All right? But, I mean, this is a guy who transcended the sport. So no general manager is going to hire a player like Barry without speaking to his, man, his uh, owner first. And it came from ownership. That's where it came from. And the owners were in direct concert with Bud Selig, who was the commissioner at the time. And they basically blacklisted the guy. They ran him out of the game because no one can come up to me. Yes, I didn't, I, I didn't have any hard evidence. I didn't have a smoking gun. I admit to that. Mm-hmm. All right. But you can build a case based upon circumstantial evidence. Okay. Circumstantial evidence is still evidence nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Might not be as good as a smoking gun, but it's still out there. So how does a guy with the numbers that Barry had, not be able to get a job for the minimum salary. So you, you can't, you can't explain that. Okay. But for the fact that they ran him out of the game, they ran him out of the game because major league baseball was turning the corner on the steroid era. Mm-hmm. Barry was obviously the poster boy for that steroid era. So who better than to make a victim out of, because, you know, to be honest, I mean, Barry was a, not a very uh, lovable. I mean, if you know him personally, he actually is a very lovable guy, hmm. but the way he played, the way he played, you know, on the field, he played with a chip on his shoulder, which is part of what I thought made him great. And yep. He wasn't the greatest. He'll be the first to admit he wasn't the greatest interview, you know, to, to <laughs> reporters and whatever. He didn't admit to that. He would admit that he, I mean, he's accountable for that. But the bottom line is, is that, uh, who better than, than to make an example out of than him? And because, you know, so they ran him out of the game and it was very sad, very sad at that time. I remember my son, He's a high school baseball pitcher now. Was just coming into his own. He was just starting to watch baseball, and I remember the fan in me was upset that he was going to be denied the opportunity to see what I believe was the most special player with the most special set of skills to ever put a uniform on. And I'm upset that he didn't get a chance to watch him play. I remember growing up, I saw a little bit of Willie Mays play, wow. a little bit. I remember I, I, growing up in LA, I saw Wilt Chamberlain. I remember going to one major sure. game, seeing Wilt Chamberlain play. And, I would have liked to have seen, now they didn't go out with the same type of circumstances that Barry went yeah. out, okay? But I would have liked to have seen them play a little bit more. And so now all I can resort to is telling my son, yeah, go on YouTube, watch what Barry did here, watch what he did there. But he didn't get to experience it, you know, currently when, when it was actually happening. And one final question related to that is uh, the Hall of Fame. And, you know, the Hall of Fame is a museum in upstate New York. It doesn't necessarily carry the same import as literally the financial future of the sport and deciding what's going to happen in the here and now, but it matters. Legacies matter. History matters. All that matters. Uh, from day one, I've been a huge proponent of Barry Bonds going into the Hall of Fame. The numbers are immutable. There are 
any number of scoundrels in the Hall of Fame. There are any number of players who've used performance-enhancing drugs in the Hall of Fame. Amphetamines are a performance-enhancing drug. Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, some of the greatest players, wonderful players, revered players, were known to have used performance-enhancing drugs. These are not facts in dispute whatsoever. If you are changing this, and you wrote about this for Balangy on the website, you mentioned this, but if you are changing the voting structure, if you are changing the way that Hall of Fame players would be decided, because it's obviously broken if Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens can't get into the Hall of Fame, what would you do? How would you change it? Well, first of all, a couple of two things there. First, let me talk about performance-enhancing drugs. Yes. I don't, I don't even know what that is, and I'll tell you why I don't know what that is. Because if a, if a player in any sport, baseball, basketball, or football, they come to the ballpark and they got a 103-degree fever, Okay, and they, they they got the shakes. They got mm-hmm. you know, and they can't they can't play. And let's say the doctor goes ahead and gives them some antibiotics intravenously and knocks their fever down to a normal level, and they they're able to suit up and take the field. Mm-hmm. Was those antibiotics a performance enhancing drug? When Kareem Abdul Jabbar used to get migraine headaches before the game, and he couldn't he couldn't get on the court, and they gave him a shot of Demerol mm-hmm. to get his headache to go away. Was that a performance enhancing drug? I don't know what a performance-enhancing drug is. I mean, people want to point to human growth hormone or steroids. Yes, okay, they obviously are. But are antibiotics that knock a guy's fever down? So he's a warrior then, and he goes out and he takes the field? But for those antibiotics, he wouldn't have been able to do that. So I think it's something that the public doesn't really understand. They don't look at. They don't consider. So I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure what that is. Now, as far as the Hall of Fame is concerned, you know, I, I don't have a problem with the Hall of Fame. I have a problem with the voting process yes. to get into the Hall of Fame. All right. Now, the fact of the matter is, is I've always thought that you know you, you can fool you can fool the the fans, you can fool the writers some of the time, but you can never fool your peers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And who are your peers? The guys, the players, the ones that play on the field alongside of you. You can never fool them. And if the players voted for who should be in the Hall of Fame, which is how I believe it should be, Hmm. and the players said that Bonds or Clemens should not be in the Hall of Fame, I could actually live with that. Hmm. But I know from talking with players, because that's what I do every day of my my life, talking with players, right? no players ever told me that they think that Barry should be in the Hall of Fame. Hmm. None of them. Hmm. So I, I think the voting process needs to be changed. And I could live with the fact that players voted, hey, Bonds, Clemens, these guys, they don't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. I could live with that. But none of them say that. Because undisputedly, I think, you know, Roger, it's arguable whether or not, and, and I actually represent Roger's kids, <laughs> I <laughs> actually think it, it's debatable as to whether or not Roger's the best pitcher of all time. He's definitely Make in that case. conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but I'll debate with anybody if Barry is the best player of all time. You know, you, you're talking about Harper right now as a free agent, whatever. Hey, Harper's a great player. I love the guy. Yep. I, I love Arenado and I love Mike Trout. Okay, I actually, I like those guys better than Harper. Mm-hmm. But you, when you talk about all three of those guys, okay, Barry's just in another another universe. <laughs> He's just in another universe when you compare Barry to those guys. They're great players, mm-hmm. but they're not what they're not what Bonds was. He was a man amongst boys. He was just, just a, a different, different animal out there. Amen to all that, sir. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to provide your insight. And uh, I hope uh, for the sport's sake that some of this stuff starts to change on the financial front uh, and on the hall front. And uh, that Barry Bonds as well should get his just due. He, in my opinion as well, uh, the greatest player who ever put the uniform on. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me on your show, Jonathan.